0: Let's turn together in our Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. The book of Hebrews, chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 1 through 14. That's the first chapter. And today I hope to cover verse 1, as you see in the order of worship, and the uh, first half of verse 2. So verse 1 to 2a is what we hope to... Consider together today, Hebrews chapter 1, I'll read verses 1 through 14 as you follow along. The word of the Lord says, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake, and time past unto the fathers by the prophets, he hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son. Whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Being made so much better than the angels, he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, then he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity, therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they shall wax old, as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Set on my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Well, I hope that uh, the first message this morning was somewhat helpful as serving as an introduction and just a a framework of how the messenger uh, comes with the book of Hebrews to try to help these People, this early church in the situation that they found themselves in. If you remember in our first message, we acknowledged the fact that one approach he was going to take was to help um, remind them of where they were at in all of redemptive history. Um, And to do so by pointing them to Jesus and along the way, encourage them to persevere in the faith. And right away, we notice that in this book of Hebrews, it doesn't start off like a, a general epistle. Like, you know, that of 1 Peter or 2 Peter. There's no, you know, I, you know, the writer of Hebrews, you know, an apostle or anything. I salute you, church. Nothing like that. It just starts off right off like a sermon would. Um, And and that's really how we want to approach this. We want to consider what he is really trying to communicate here in verse 1 and uh, this prologue in verses 1 through 3, but specifically today in verse 1. He says, God, who at sundry times and diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Now, what's interesting about this is that really he begins much like I would imagine that the apostles would have began speaking to Jews about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, They wouldn't have began with the prophecy of the... uh, um, angel to Mary that she was going to conceive of a child naming Jesus. They wouldn't have began there. They would have went into the local synagogue like the Apostle Paul was well known to have done and they would have began to unfold from the Old Testament scriptures how God had spoken to their fathers through the prophets in times past and how that had been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so to this group of people that we learned about in the first message were on the precipice of giving up. They were on the precipice of giving in, letting go of their commitment and their confession of Christ. What's the approach here of the writer? His approach is to really start with the gospel. He wants to start afresh with elevating the supremacy of Jesus in all of the ages and then as we get into more of chapter 1, you well, you noticed already in the reading, he's elevating Jesus above the angels, um, so forth and so on. And that's what he's doing. He's really just elevating the superior, superiority of Jesus Christ in all of these ages. And he starts off here with this pronouncement that God has spoken. And so he wants to remind them who are wanting to give up, guys, remember the message that you have received through God who has spoken through the fathers and through the prophets which you formerly received. But just to remind you, he says, let's consider it once more together. He says, God who at sundry times past uh, and in diverse manners spake. This is God revealing in a special way Something about himself, about his plan, and about his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that otherwise wouldn't be known. And so immediately this speaking of God then and the speaking of God now causes us to consider our first heading for today, and that is God's revelations. How does God reveal himself? How does God speak then and how does he speak now? When we consider the way God speaks to us as creation, there's two ways to consider it. There is what's called natural revelation, and then there is what's being spoken about here today in verses 1 and 2, special revelation. So let's just get natural revelation out of the way. What do we mean by that? Well, first of all, let's acknowledge together that we cannot know anything about God unless God common sends down and teaches us something about himself this is what a lot of the great confessions of the christian faith have always acknowledged for instance from the london baptist confession the distance it describes it between us and god is so great that we could not know anything about him or what he requires of us if he did not reveal it himself to us uh, the prophet Isaiah, many of you familiar with this text of Scripture, which enunciates this point of this vast gulf between us and God and us knowing anything, speaking as an oracle or a mouthpiece of God, Isaiah said, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are, many, so are my ways, referring to God, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And so we need God, don't we, to teach us. We need God to speak to us. We need God to reveal himself to us. Otherwise, we will be left to our own devices. Well, natural revelation, this first consideration of how God reveals things to his creation, is God making himself known in creation. Um, the Bible teaches that the stars are speaking to us in a sense of their glorious creator. Um, how many of us, <laughs> if we're honest, look at a beautiful sunset on the top of a gorgeous mountain you know, view and we just all sit back and go, boy, what a wonderful just display of a bunch of random chances from you know, slime that has evolved to this point. No, what we do is we go, you know what, I may not be able to figure it all out But that is absolutely amazing, gorgeous, and beautiful, right? It points to something other than itself. And this is natural creation, or I'm sorry, natural revelation. The Bible teaches that God made all the creation and is to put in creation attributes of uh, of himself to display it for us. Sometimes this is called general revelation. The word general because everyone sees it in creation, God's creation. He is really displaying a revelation of Himself to all mankind. No one can be without excuse who are sitting under the stars and breathing the air that God has given them in natural revelation. The psalmist in Psalm nineteen one through 4 considering natural revelation, says that creation speaks the glory of God. Quote, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day, creation it's referring to, pours out speech. And night after night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth. And their words to the end of the world end them he has set a tent for the sun, And so it's as plain as day, you could say. Natural revelation is to mankind preaching a message that there's a Creator. He is wonderful. He is immaculate. He is amazing. He is beautiful. He is orderly. He is intelligent. But what does fallen man do? Well, the book of Romans teaches us to this sermon of natural revelation, he suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. He sees it like a little kid he puts his fingers in his ears because he knows the implications that if there's a creator who created him and created the world around him he has a responsibility to know this god and he might find out that there's certain requirements of him to obey that god and so like a little kid he puts his ears his fingers in his ears like I said and he kicks and screams and says I'm not going to listen I'm not going to listen but that doesn't make the creator god the message of natural revelation just go away, does it? No, it doesn't. It just means it condemns him all the more. I want to be clear, since we're talking about natural revelation, just to get it out of the way, that natural revelation, this way of God speaking through creation, this, you could say, natural knowledge, it's not the same thing as saving knowledge. It's not the same thing as coming to a particular understanding of how God through His creation, throughout history, how He's brought His only begotten Son into that creation to die for sinners and you know, requiring faith and repentance to be saved from hell and destruction. That's not enough, natural revelation. In other words, that debunks the idea, what I just said, of natural revelation of the noble savage who on an island somewhere... Uh, detached all from society, has enough information from natural revelation to come to a complete understanding of himself as a sinful man in his need of a Savior, and that Savior being the only begotten Son of God to Jesus Christ. And immediately to the modern contextual uh, uh, context and environment we're in, everyone wants to say, well then, that seems a little unfair. That if a man is born somewhere out of nowhere and he never has the benefit of hearing the gospel, never have the benefit of being connected to what these Christians in Hebrews chapter one verse one were connected to a witness of special revelation through fathers and prophets throughout the ages and his his passing of a cross with someone a missionary who want to give him the gospel that he himself should never be condemned to hell. That just doesn't seem fair. He didn't have a choice in the matter. Was this true? Is this true? While natural revelation cannot bring someone through their own reasoning, the own searching of their conscience, to a specific understanding of the gospel, yet it is sufficient to bring accountability and judgment. When an unrepentant sinner stands before the thrice holy judgment seat of God, they're not going to be able to say, I did not know. I never heard. Because they did hear. The Bible also talks about, particularly in Romans 5, that part of natural revelation is that man created in the image of God has a conscience. The savage doesn't need a sermon from Pastor Doug expounding the book of Leviticus or Deuteronomy to tell him that murder's wrong. When he murders a fellow savage in cold blood murder, he has a conscience and he knows that that's wrong. But, but, but Doug, how does he know that that's wrong? There, there's not a moral code. He's not from a societal, cultural environment that has told him that's wrong. He knows it's wrong because of natural revelation written on his heart that it is wrong. And sometimes anthropologists tell, tell us and inform us that in tribes, one of the most heinous crimes, without any interference from the outside world, one of the most heinous crimes that they take the most serious offense to is uh, theft, is stealing. You steal a basket of berries... From my tent, you know, they will wage war over that stuff. Well, how do they know that that's wrong? Because they have, through natural revelation, the moral law of God, whether they know how to spell out all that theology and understanding themselves or not, written upon their hearts. But special revelation is what is specifically being talked about here in verse 1 by the writer of Hebrews. Hebrews. Special revelation can be defined as a supernatural communication from God that has been given to us as mankind. This communication, as pretty obvious in the text here, can come in either oral or in written form. This is what it means in the text when it says, God, who at sundry times, different times, the first part of the way God's revealed his special revelation, he he didn't download to man all of the things he needed to know at once. About his special revelation. We see in verse number one, connected with God uh, giving special revelation about himself, and in the context of this uh, letter to the Hebrews, particularly his gospel, we see that it was done in diverse manners. You remember in the Garden of Eden, uh, one way, in one manner, that God communicated with Adam, the text says, we're not going to get lost in this hayfield, but it says he walked with Adam. He communed, he talked with Adam. Some believe that that was Jesus uh, in in the garden. Uh, But but, but there was one manner, there was one way in which God was given special revelation. Eat of all of the trees, but not this one. Well, Adam wouldn't have known that one was off limits, unless what? God, through special revelation, communicated his will to Adam, right? How else did, did God do it? Well, he did it through dreams, he, he did it through verbal plenary inspiration. And when we mean that, it's just a big jargon way of saying that God put the very words in men's and prophets' minds to where they would verbally speak the words of God. And so this is special revelation which was needed for God to communicate what he was going to do and the plan that he was going to accomplish because of sin in the world. So special revelation was necessary because nature, studying providence or historical events, even meditating on traditions, even if they were unwritten, just some sort of odd religious ceremonial tradition from ancient cultures, or any way of processing and reasoning, man cannot ever come to a knowledge of who God is and what God expects of them. They would not be able to do that through natural revelation. We see here in verse number 1 that this special revelation is what specifically is being mentioned by the writer of Hebrews. He is wanting to bring these people back to this story of God's special revelation that has spanned all of history, beginning in the garden, and remind them that this story, he, it's, it's, it, in a way, he's saying, remember, God has spoken to us. Let's recap the story. Let's recap the message so that you can see once again that the claims of those outside of the church against you have no grounding. Guys, remember in our introduction how we were talking about the environment in which Hebrews was written into was important. Here's one reason why. Because in the first century or two, the Christians were being charged with this accusation that their faith in Jesus, this message, this declaration of this quote-unquote new religion was just something novel. And so what the early church fathers had to do was repeat the gospel as it was preached by the apostles or the second generation, those who walked, walked with the apostles, that no, 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 we don't have a new faith. We have a fulfillment of the ancient faith. There was a brother, I love when the Spirit does this, there was a brother before church who has some out of town family members in town and they're really into like, you know, just Eastern mysticism and different aspects of spiritualism. And one of those involved, not surprisingly, Hinduism. And Hinduism, we've been going through church history class, is a very ancient religion along with Buddhism. And they said to him, as a challenge, as if it were, because in their ignorance, they didn't understand, they didn't know the claims of Christianity. They said, our faith, our beliefs in Hinduism is much older than Christianity. So therefore, right, if it's older, it's got to be better or it's right. Well, right here was his message for them. right? Oh, no, you poor little people. Let me explain to you how in sundry times and diverse manners, God has been preaching Christ throughout all of the ages. Well, this is exactly what they were being faced with in the first century. The Jews were coming to them and saying, oh, you poor people, you're so confused. Jesus wasn't the Messiah. Here's this and here's that and here's this. And then you had the other Roman, Greco-polytheistic friends of theirs or co-workers coming to them and saying, oh, you don't understand, this is new. No, we we hold to this ancient form of religion. And so what in his wisdom is this writer inspired to do? Is take them back to the glorious message of God speaking then and speaking now. And so let's just do that. Let's do that today. Let's look how God began to specially reveal something that natural revelation can never show and how through all of the Bible He's been communicating this message which climaxes in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in verse number 2. And it begins how God began to speak then. It begins at the dawn of human history. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. God, who at sundry times and diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Well, Moses, being the first prophet here, is recording for us in Genesis 3, 14 through 15, the very first glimpse of God's special revelation which will climax in his son. Genesis 3, 14 and 15, you know the context here, I'm sure. Uh, there has just been the deceiving of the woman uh, and the man, uh, Adam and Eve, by the serpent, and they have sinned. And we're here right now in verses 14 and 15 receiving the judgment from God, which actually is mixed with a lot of grace if you really think about it. But beginning with verse 14, the Lord Uh, God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all the cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Verse 15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Well, we see here the reason for God's special revelation, which will go through time, to the fathers through the prophets. Why? Because of the fall. Because of the fall. Because thou, verse 14 says, has done this. Here's the charge against Satan who the Scripture says in the form of a serpent, uh, serpent rather, successfully tempted Eve and then Adam her husband to break the commandment that God had given them and thus commit sin. And this sin totally affected their entire being. Titus in chapter 1 verse 15 describes this infection of sin and mankind with these words unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure but even their mind and their conscience is defiled you see the need for special revelation god needed to begin to enact how he was going to remedy this no longer were our first parents pure at this point no longer were they totally free and as our representatives for the human race they brought a curse upon us all romans 5 12. So then I think clearly here at the very beginning of dawn of time is the real case made for the need of God's special revelation which would climax in Jesus. Mankind were sinners in desperate need of a Savior. Well, we see also in verse 15 through this step of special revelation that this Messiah, this promised seed was going to be a man. Don't we? We see that in verse 15. Look at your Bibles. In between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The good news of the gospel is here, first revealed by God, isn't it? Through special revelation. This is his first, you could say, hint of the gospel of Jesus Christ at the very beginning of human history. His purpose planned from all eternity, like the first signs of a child within a womb of a woman, is here beginning to be known through His special revelation. And then by farther and farther steps, just as an infant is brought forth in delivery, also His special revelation with time, in different ways, in different manners, different people will come to a full discovery in verse 2 in His Son, the Lord Jesus. The first sign of the promise we see in verse 15 through this portion of God's special revelation is that a man will come forth from the seed of the woman and would strike a fatal blow to Satan the serpent who, as the Bible says, was perfect according to Ezekiel from the day that he was, Satan as an angel, created till iniquity was found in him. Special revelation in different ways, in different times, and through different prophets continues to move forward in our Bibles. And this story that God's revealing, which is going to climax in verse number 2 of our text today in Jesus, continues to go on. Turn your Bibles a little further to Genesis 22.18. Because now, in a step through another prophet and a great father of the faith, Abraham, God through special revelation, reveals what nation that this man would come through. Genesis 22.18. This is, of course, in the context of a reiteration of God's covenant promise to the prophet Abraham. He says in verse 18, In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. After one of the most grandest tests of faith in all of Scripture, that of Abraham being called to sacrifice Isaac, we see both a literal and a spiritual sense in this repeating or this repetition of the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham would be both a father of multitudes physically, but for our purposes today in God's special revelation through this prophet, we see that most significantly through his physical descendants there was going to come this man a promised seed of the woman who would come and in whom a multitude of all the elect of God from all nations under heaven would be blessed with peace, pardon, righteousness, and eternal life experiencing grace here and now and even more glory in their hereafter. And thus we are moving forward and the writer of Hebrews is wanting to take them back and remember how they would have first heard the gospel to understand that in special revelation... To the fathers and to the prophets, God reveals to us that that the promised seed was going to come through the nation that would be a descendant of Abraham's physical descendants. This is how they would have preached the gospel, the message, the story that they would have first heard to come to faith and understand that Jesus was the culmination of all these things. Well, let's move forward in this story. Let's move forward in God speaking through special revelation to the fathers and prophets. Let's turn our Bibles to Genesis 49.10. Because not only does God reveal that it was going to be through Abraham's physical descendants that this promised seed would come, But now he gets even more specific in how he is speaking and showing this special revelation that through the study of the stars, through the study of their ceremonies, through the study of their lineages, they would have never been able to come to this. This was God's special revelation showing them this. Now he reveals to them what tribe, what specific tribe in this large multitude of descendants of Abraham that this promised seed would come. Here it comes through the blessing of Jacob upon his son Judah. Genesis 49, look with me at verse 10. Jacob says to his son Judah, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh, or that is, peace, comes. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Here God reveals through the blessing of Jacob to his son Judah that from his tribe, from his lineage, the scepter, which was a symbol of power and rule, that it would never depart. Thus henceforth, all the other tribes, all the other future fathers, all the other future prophets, they would have understood that through this act of special revelation that the Messiah must come from the tribe of Judah. But wait a minute, we know that this must have more than just a literal meaning, meaning that there was some physical man going to be from the tribe of Judah, going to be given the scepter of power and rule, and with him will come peace, because when this is being written, you have to remember that later on, people who would have heard it would have seen that, wait a minute we under repressive Roman rule. And while King Herod, who was a Jew, did have a certain level of power, uh, the Roman Empire, we remember this in church history, was one of the reasons why they were so successful. When they conquered a land, they allowed the religious sects to still have a certain level of autonomy and authority to handle their religious affairs. And so while King Herod did have, in a way, a scepter to handle religious affairs within the Jewish community, we know, do we not, after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, that was all taken away. Well, does God's word not come true? Does this special revelation not come true? Well, of course it comes true in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is, through his legal father, that is, his earthly father, if we use those terms, Joseph in the royal line and descendants of Judah. Special revelation. Jesus, the Bible tells us, he possesses a scepter of righteousness that is eternal. You read that in the text this morning in chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews. Jesus, by the blood of his cross, made peace between God, made Shiloh and his church, therefore bringing his heirs into the present peace in this life and everlasting peace in the one to come. So you see, through special revelation, God was teaching that the tribe of Judah was going to bring forth this promised Messiah. And we know that indeed He did, didn't He? Well, these facts along with much more evidence draws for us then an overwhelming conclusion that God here specifically was speaking unto the fathers and the prophets that the promised Messiah was to come through the line of Judah. But He doesn't stop there. He continues with this story. He continues with this special revelation, this message later on in redemptive history through the prophet of Isaiah. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Isaiah chapter 11. God continuing through the fathers and the prophets this special revelation. He reveals not only what nation, not only what tribe, meaning Judah, but also... From what family within that tribe the Messiah would come? Isaiah 11 verse 1 prophesying about here's the prophet Isaiah prophesying, giving the message uh, pointing forward to the fulfillment of God's promise that the fathers and the prophets before Him had communicated. He gives another glimpse through special revelation of the family which this Messiah was going to come there shall come forth a rod out of the stem Uh oh here it is of Jesse that's a particular family and a branch shall grow out of his roots now we move forward in God's special revelation that's being mentioned here in Hebrews 1 1 today unto the fathers and the prophets we see that God reveals here through the prophet Isaiah from which the very family within the tribe of Judah that the Messiah was going to be born Recall that the fathers and their Jewish nation, they were expecting a Messiah king that would come and crush the oppression of the Roman Empire that was being forced upon them. And so they were looking for someone that was going to be with a bunch of pomp and, and glorious display. And so their understanding of this special revelation was very carnal in a way. However, if, if they were to pay attention a little closer to the continued message of Isaiah, they would have seen that God also was specially revealing something to them about the Messiah and in the way He was going to free them and the way that He was going to assume His throne of power. Look at verse 10. In that day shall there be a root of Jesse which shall stand for a sign or a banner of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek and rest shall, and his rest shall be glory. So he was going to include the Gentiles, which in the time of the first century, the Jews would not, they weren't willing to accept that. You guys remember when we were in the book of Ephesians going through the relationship and the hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. They did not want to accept the fact that the Messiah at all would be open to the Gentiles. If they would read a little bit more through the special revelation to Isaiah in chapter 53, they would see that he wouldn't come in military might but rather, he was going to be wounded for our transgressions. He was going to be bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was going to be placed upon him. And he was going to be beaten. And by his stripes we were going to be healed. There is then no doubt that God was, through special revelation, to the, through the prophets, unto the fathers, by farther and farther steps revealing This gospel promise that he initiated and announced at the beginning of time that these Jewish Christians would have heard and they needed to be reminded of it. Is there someone here today that needs to be reminded of this, as the old hymn says, the old, old story? Have we, perhaps, in the modern Christian church culture, Kind of, kind of got wrapped up into this idea that church is more about me or what it gives me, or about social clubs and and this type of stuff. Have we, have we lost our compass a little bit? about the focus and the meaning of the church being this, the fulfillment of the promise of God throughout all of history to bring the Messiah to crush the head of the serpent and to liberate us from the bondage of our sins and to give us new hope, to give us a new song, to give us a new message to a dying and dark world. This is the reason why we are gathered here today. This is the reason why we are gathered and we won't get dismayed by the things that are going on around us because we know that this message has been accomplished in Jesus Christ that it's been foretold, has been promised, has been specially revealed throughout various prophets at various times throughout all of history. Even though, remember, it took upwards to 2,000 years before God actually put an end Chapter to his story. That's what's so amazing about this, is because when the text says in Hebrews, you don't have to turn there because I know you're here in Isaiah, but when he says, Who at sundry times in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, remember there was a big gulf of time before he ever spoke again. And so all of that was progressive, all of it was pointing forward. All of it was like a play with no ending. How many of you get frustrated with books you read and you get to the end and it's like an open ended ending, right? You're like, ah, I know, you know, Nolan, you're reading that that one story of Brian's Winter, I think it was, or something, and the guy kind of leaves it at the end, this author, and he didn't close it. And he got a bunch of uh, people writing him, a bunch of his fans, and saying, how could you end the book that way? You got to write another book and end it. Well, that's what God was doing through these prophecies. He was pointing forward. He was moving forward. And there was building upon an anticipation of it being fulfilled. And guess what? He continued to reveal more. Not only was he, did He reveal the nation, not only did He reveal the tribe, not only did He reveal that it was going to come through a particular family, that is Jesse's family, but also in the book of Daniel as redemptive history goes forward, turn your Bibles to Daniel 9 we see that God also revealed the timing. Now it's getting even more precise. God was speaking. God spoke through special revelation and there were so many who would not hear it. And so the writer of the Hebrews is taking them back through this old narrative and reminding them of these precious realities that God displayed to them which was used by the Spirit to convince them of the truth, of their need to embrace Christ and confess Christ as Jews, even though it would have brought much uh, tribulation and trials for them. Daniel 9.25 deals with the, the timing. Knowing therefore and understand, Daniel is inspired to prophesy that from the going forth of the commandment, To restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince shall be seven weeks. So whatever this means, this restoring, this building of Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the promised Prince, there was going to be a lapse of time, seven weeks, the text says. And threescore and two weeks, the streets shall be built again, and the wall and even the troublous times. And so through special revelation, God now is dialing in through the prophet Daniel the timing of the coming of this promised Messiah. No doubt here is given to the chosen nation through which the Messiah was going to come, a prophecy, a revelation, a special one, that would have raised the uh, expectations, you could say, of this people who have gone through much up until this point in redemptive history. Tired. Weary. Where's God? Especially those who possess true faith. It would have raised their expectations. Now, through God's spokesperson in special revelation, we understand about more of the approaching time. Oh, what from whenever Jerusalem is built, there's going to be seven weeks. Now, as we have seen thus far... There were general promises of the Messiah that He should come that were made to the patriarch through various prophets, but never was the timing fixed for His coming until Daniel. Well, let's consider the seven weeks. I promise I'm not going to exasperate you with this. But let me just say that the timing here can be laborious to understand if it wanted to be fully unpacked. But in brief, allow me just to tell you that the weeks mentioned here, as in most prophetic styles, of the genres of literature in the Bible. It is an obtruse and out of the common way of speaking. The seven weeks here in general are understood by most theologians to be seven times 70, which equals 490 years. And I encourage you, go study that and understand and hear the argumentations and their understanding of ancient Jewish manuscripts of why they come to that conclusion or that understanding. Don't just take it from me. Well, when you do that from this time that this prophecy is given, and you add 490 years, well, it comes to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It equals out into His coming and doing in Jerusalem a work. So there's a couple ways to look at it. Many scholars hold that from this moment that Gabriel spoke to Daniel to the time of Christ, if his death was exactly 490 years. Another view is as some scholars calculate that the timing to mean three and a half years after the death of Christ, when the Jews, having rejected Jesus as their Messiah, the apostles then turned to the Gentiles. Some believe it was at that time, or it was a fulfillment of that. Then there are yet some who, with a very good evidence, make these 490 years end with the destruction of Jerusalem, which was about 37 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But no matter how you shake the stick, it's very interesting that in this prophecy, through this special revelation in time past, that God dialed in even the timing of the coming of the sun in verse number two of our text today. This definitely would have been a stinging point of application by the apostles in preaching the gospel to their Jewish audience and the second generation of Christians preaching to Jews. And the reason is, is because all of this successfully served to silence the expectations of the unbelieving Jew that there was still someone other than Jesus who was promised and was going to come. They would not own Jesus as their promised Messiah, but they still were then and they are today looking for the fulfillment of this prophecy of Daniel. They reject the name of Christ, the modern day Jewish community. This prophecy, especially in light of past histories, should immediately silence and condemn them so that they are without any excuse. And that's how the apostles preached. You remember in the early book of Acts, When Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian faith, was stoned, gave the most eloquent gospel message and he walked through all of their history, kind of what we're doing today, and he basically said at the end of his message, you are without excuse. And what did they do? They picked up stones in rage and they martyred Stephen. Furthermore, by these overwhelming facts, we as Christians, these early Christian, uh, these converts from Judaism to Christian, They were all the more uh, convinced of their faith in the Messiah as being that which was ancient and concrete and settled. I'm going to skip, just for time's sake, the special revelation of what town the Messiah was going to come from. God, through another prophet, the prophet Micah, he even speaks of the town in which the Messiah would come from. And then he was silent for 400 years. For 400 years. And he begins to speak once more. Doesn't he? And he does it through the angels. We know in the Gospel of Luke, the angel comes to Mary. And then in a dream, he speaks through special revelation to Joseph. He speaks to Elizabeth, her cousin. And he begins to say, it's not over. I'm, 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 I'm continuing to speak. Now, all of this story, all of this drama that I have been painting for the last 2,000 years is coming to a point where I'm going to move mightily and it's going to be through my only begotten son, Jesus. He told Mary, you shall call his name Jesus. And Jesus' entire ministry here encapsulated in verse number 2, which was special revelation by God the Father spoken to in creation, in time, space, and history, was that the kingdom of God had now come. That everything that was open-ended at sundry times in diverse ways through diverse and different prophets had now come to a culmination. And He was here to bring the liberation of both Jew and Gentile in His ministry, in His cross work. And so, Now, next week when we start going into the rest of the message, we're going to see that what the writer of Hebrews just did was just bring them right back to the basics, didn't he? He just brought them right back to the initial gospel that they had first heard and that the Holy Spirit used to prick their heart that yes, Jesus was the fulfillment of all of the special revelation that God had promised and had been speaking to us through our prophets and through our fathers in times past. And yes, Jesus did in finality conclude all of the revelation of God the Father to us as His people and in Jesus Christ and His teaching and that which He bestowed upon the apostles we have a certainty that He is indeed the risen Savior who is interceding for us in the midst of these afflictions that are seeking to quench our faith to cause us to let go of our hope and to cause us to apostatize from the one and true gospel. How many of us today need to come back to the simple message of the gospel? Perhaps it is our failure of appropriating the truth of the gospel that His blood isn't sufficient enough to cover all of my sins. That you know what? There is not any more blood left for me because of my sins. And what's the writer of the Hebrews' solution? Remember the Gospel. Remember the message. Remember the special revelation. It's still effectual. It's still as applicable. It is still as sufficient then as it is now. What's he do in order to help them deal with the the pressures of the unbelieving world around them which is trying to get them to blend their Christianity with remnants of Judaism or perhaps I think not so much the case but with the Roman Greco-pagan culture around them? was what? To remind them of what Christ had come to liberate them from. The bondage of those old things. The uselessness of those old things. To point them to what Christ could do that those things could never do. Who of us in here today is perhaps tempted by the lights, the glamour, the bells and smells of other things. And we're wanting to add perhaps to the simple things of the Christian faith. Because Jesus... And the simple things of the Christian faith just aren't working for me. No, push aside that stuff and look back to the simple, faithful gospel message that through special revelation, God in Christ has given us everything that He has promised. And may that rekindle, may that awaken anyone today who is holding on to the plow. I use this illustration frequently because Pastor Shea at our home church, he used to use it so much when I myself was erring from the truth. He said, Doug, don't let go of the plow. Hold on to the plow. Those who look back are not worthy of the kingdom. Friends, beloved, weary, fellow Christians, let us remember that in time past, God spoke and that He now in His Son, through His church, through His Spirit, in His Word, is still speaking. Find hope. Find encouragement. Find boldness and courage to persevere in the faith, in this reality, in this truth. Which if you confess Christ, you say that you have. You confess you have this special revelation as a reality in your life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we bless you and we thank you humbly, O Lord, for your long-suffering patient hand that has moved throughout all of history, painting for us, Lord, through the prophets, a picture of mercy, of covenant faithfulness, uniting, O God, us with the people of past faith, Lord, as they were looking forward to this promised seed of the woman that you announced at the dawn of man's history, that we also, Lord, look to that same promised seed. We look unto him with further revelation, further knowledge of his name, of his person, of his work. And I pray, O oh God, that you would For any of us here today, that Lord need to be reminded of the basic, simple confession of Christ and who he is. The fulfillment of everything that you promised. That Lord, we would, we would just bow the knee once again to the gospel that we first heard. Just like these Jewish Christians would have first heard it as the apostles and other preachers would have declared it throughout all the providences of Rome, they would have taken them all the way back and shown them how that Jesus was the climactic fulfillment of all of these things. You had spoken then and you now are speaking even in our own day and age. Use, we pray, your special revelation of the gospel, your infallible perfect word and use imperfect men and women to communicate Still this special gospel message to the world in which we exist in today. Safe souls, O Father. O Spirit of God, move mightily in the hearts and the minds of men in this age, we pray. All of this to the glory of your person and your mercy and grace. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.